Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is Your Calls Media Roundtable. It's been three weeks since two powerful earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. A few days ago, another earthquake hit Turkey's southern province. More than 47,000 people have died, and that number is expected to climb. At least 420,000 homes have been destroyed, leaving 2 million people homeless, according to estimates. Today, we are going to talk about Syrian refugees who've been displaced again and again. Up to 20,000 Syrian refugees who'd been living in Turkey have made the decision to cross the border into Syria, according to reports. It's unclear what rules apply in case they head back to Turkey again, according to Info Migrants. More than 5 million children have been affected. Many are coping with the trauma of losing their homes and their parents. A lot of people are asking why it is taking so long for adequate aid to reach those in need. Joining us with the latest is Alia Malik, an award-winning journalist and director of international reporting at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Alia Malik's reporting has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times and The Nation. She's the author of The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. Hi, Alia. It's been a while. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hi, Rose. It's nice to be with you. And thanks for, you know, putting the focus back on what's going on in Syria. Well, you know, thank you, uh, Alia. As you know, it's just it's not getting enough attention. And I I just want to ask you for some context, because I'm thinking that people have forgotten or people just don't know. Can you just remind us what has happened in Syria and, and why so many people have fled. It, it's been under international sanctions since 2011, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't want to go too much into a history lesson, but basically, you know, I mean, a peaceful uprising against long time, the longtime regime, which at that point in 2011 had been in power for almost 40 years, gave way to or didn't give away, it was responded to by the regime in a brutal crackdown that's sort of set off the initial the initial displacements both internally and across um across external borders. Uh and at some point the uh, people who were opposing the regime did choose predictably uh and really according to the you know according to what would serve the regime to arm themselves as well because then we sort of took a turn into this like civil war and in the, you know, moral murkiness of a civil war, it was, it became even easier for people to look away for the rest of the world to look away or not to, not to have to take a stand. Uh, And the regime escalated its attacks on both the armed opposition, but also disproportionately on civilians. And those attacks manifested themselves in, you know, regular uh, conventional weapons, but also the use of chemical weapons. Uh, And then one of its most successful uh, tactics, which was this kind of, you know, siege in area, uh, starve it, really, you know, subject the people to, to starvation, and then finally cut a deal uh, with people to be evacuated to the north, which is why you have such a huge population of people now living in those northern, northern regions, which are not in the control of the Syrian regime, uh, and where the the impact of the earthquake was was most felt. And basically, the reason we're probably talking about Syria at all now 
other than like the sort of like, you know, I guess whatever feel good it makes us feel to sort of think about places and moments of, uh, you know, ecological sort of disasters is that the, basically it appeared that the plan, um, the global community, international communities approach to Syria was going to be, at least to the displaced populations, um, the situation was to let them mostly be in, in, in Turkey and Lebanon, which are the border countries that host the biggest amount of Syrian refugee populations. You know, they were sort of dumped in, in Turkey and welcomed to, to different, you know, different degrees. But that calculus sort of changed when the earthquake happened. And you saw, now have populations in the exact same area where the Syrian displaced Syrians are in, in, the, in those borderlands um, in the south of Turkey uh, now are also themselves displaced. So that calculus really changes when you have a native population that now needs um, space, needs shelter, needs aid. And that's why there's probably a little bit of focus on, on Syria again, because what, what happens to all those Syrians that are hosted uh, by Turkey currently and a, you know, a country that you know, Europe and the United States was sort of happy to outsource um, dealing with this humanitarian crisis too. That now has its own humanitarian crisis that it ha- that it has to face. And I heard you in your introduction mention that there are Syrians now, after essentially ten years of being in Syria, whose children now speak Turkish, have, but who have been now displaced multiple times. And I, I spoke with one of these families in the initial wake of the of the earthquake, have decided to to go back to the northern regions of Syria that are under um, opposition control, but that which the Syrian regime regularly bombards and also has been denying aid to. So I guess, you know, we've decided to sort of like abdicate any kind of responsibility, but, you know, Syria was a global failure, if not morally before now, you know, from a management, merely from, you know, if, if we can't, if we can't be moved by the moral failure, then maybe somebody will be moved by the management failure that has become obvious in this discussion of how do you get aid to these regions, who controls the aid. Um, Yeah, sorry, I tried to give your readers as much or your listeners as much as possible. No, I I so appreciate that. And and if you do want to learn more about the history, we did have Alia on to talk about her book, The Home That Was Our Country, A Memoir of Syria. And you can find it at yourcallradio.org. For a little more context, can you just talk mm. about these opposition groups? Who controls the north? I mean, it's not it's not particularly centralized, but uh, essentially, people who had either opposed the regime uh, militarily or as an activist, or even just happened to be civilians who lived in the areas that the regime had decided were sort of enemy territory, have have been evacuated from their from the parts of Syria that they were from to the north in Idlib. So this is probably where most people hear about the white helmets, for example. Uh, and and it's it's a you know it's a mix. It's not it's not it's not it's not, it's not under the state's control. And the but that's where most of the borders are between um, Turkey and Syria, and where much of the aid could 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 be coming through. But uh, once the Syrian regime lost control of that area. The United Nations decided that cross-border aid, even before the earthquake, would only be allowed with with um, Syrian regime's uh, approval. And, and since there was no, no such approval by the Syrian regime, whose obvious policies are to starve and, to starve and you know, basically 
defeat those regions the only way there was any aid that was coming to the north was through um with the with the approval of the u.n security council now obviously russia and china both sit on the security council and vetoed most of the access so that's why we were at a point where there was only one border crossing open between turkey between turkey and and northern parts of, of syria um and as i said at the top of the show that's where most of the impact of the um of the uh, the earthquake was and and then aid and and I know there have been so many discussions around sanctions and aid and what that what that has looked like in Syria and people even of good intention you know putting out like graphics that purport to reveal that it's the sanctions that are the reason that there's no aid coming in uh, the reality is that one of the ways that Russia uh, did allow the Security Council vote to go through was to negotiate that any aid, you know, most aid had to come through Damascus, through the regime. And you, your reader or your listeners can find, you know, these reports, are, it's been so well documented how much of that aid has actually been stolen by the regime. I mean, the regime has never changed. It's always been a kleptocracy and it's always been corrupt. And, you know, not only have they weaponized aid and what aid can re- reach the North, which even before the earthquake, they were not allowing. They also have been like skimming a well, you know, a healthy portion of the aid off of the top of what is coming in through Damascus. So that's sort of the situation, you know, if, if there's if there's a takeaway, it's that this idea that we could sort of benign neglect, uh, you know, the situation in Syria. I mean, the rooster, what is the expression? The roosters have really come home to roost because this sort of situation that we have it has is untenable and has been untenable. And now we're, we're sort of seeing, you know, the fissures are, you know, literally and, and metaphorical and much more obvious at the moment. So then do you think that criticism of the UN for its slow response is legitimate? I mean, how the UN cannot, could not, uh, cross, there was one small border crossing between, between, uh, if you're, if there's a criticism of the UN, it's a criticism of the, like the entire international structure that we've set up because within what the UN is able to do, it has been, you know, to some extent doing that. Uh, the only way that it was able to get any aid into Syria before the earthquake was to go through the regime and its interpretation of whether or not it needed the Syrian regime's permission to use those border, those border crossings that were, that are not actually in the regime's control. That's complicated. It's like it's it's very inside baseball. But like the problem is really much more with the international system that we have set up as opposed to the UN itself. Huh. No, I think this is so important because uh, just yesterday Reuters had a piece UN to expand quake aid into northwest Syria, but officials say a further scale up is needed. So more than 280 trucks have crossed the Turkish border into northwestern Syria since aid operations resumed on February 9th. But so many people, uh, Mahanad Hadi, the regional humanitarian coordinator for the Syria crisis, just said, this is just, it's inadequate because there's just so yeah, well, much need. A, right. That's it is. It's a drop in the bucket. And this is, but again, is that a, is that a criticism of the UN or a criticism of how the UN is funded and its dependence on donors and, and what it's able to do? And the fact that we do have security councils where, where certain powers, you know, can veto, right? We, those border, you know, they were, they were five at one point border, um, crossings that were open since uh, the conflict started and they have one by one been shut down and they're subject to renewal. 
at the Security Council, and Russia and China have consistently vetoed that. So, like, so the criticism is really of the system that, of the situation that we're in. And yes, it is. I, I mean, I serve on the board of a of a Syrian uh, relief group, uh, and it is absurd that this falls to individuals, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is this, this is the situation that we're in. That like we have been, you know, in constant fundraising mode since since the morning of, of the earthquake, and people have responded, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of the largesse of, of individuals is in many ways, you know, what is what is heartening because it has fallen. This is the sort of this is how we are constantly responding to crises. We were, you know, we we're dependent on individuals and individual organizations. When the problem is, the problem in Syria has and has always remained, right? That we have this problem with with the regime and who controls Syria, you know. But after eleven years, there's been so much obfuscation. There's been so much uh, disinformation and misinformation about Syria. You know, disinformation where the the intent was malignant, and misinformation where people, even of good faith, who are right to suspect U.S. Let's say, you know, hegemony the world have you know real blind spots to also what is actually happening in Syria because they're so you know they're so in their ideological corners mm-hmm. so until we you know so I don't know what the, I don't know what the planet wants to send our way next I don't know what com- I mean the fact that they've already there was another earthquake afterwards like the ultimate uh disease remains what you know what is going on in, in Damascus and everything else is like a, is a metastasis that we, you know, so as long as you keep treating the metastasis, okay, that, but that's never going to change the fact that the, the, the fundamental rot is the regime in Damascus. What is the status of NGOs working in the area and trying to get aid to refugees? Right. I mean, we, like, at Best Wednesday, Twin, Smile and Olive, the one that I'm on the board of, we've been having to work inside Syria for a long time, and it is a very delicate um delicate way to work where you have local partners um that you that yes we are able to get aid we are able to we have been able even since before the earthquake but aid has always been something that the regime has targeted even before we were in this situation the first year when this when i was still inside damascus any efforts by syrian civilians to try to extend any kind of solidarity by sending aid to other regions that had, uh, you know, sort of come under regime bombardment or for people who lost their homes, you know, was, was effectively shut down very, very early on. I mean, it's part of a way to keep a society fractured. But these NGOs have, and there are many, there are a few of them, and I'm, I'm happy to shout them out, um, and other organizations that have, have done good work, have continued to, to do... Um, to do what, what states and governments have, have failed to do. What about actual money? Can you just tell us mm-hmm. the status of, of the, the donations and how much is needed and how is the international community responding? I don't know how, uh, I don't know that I, I can actually respond to that with any kind of expertise. I mean, I know that privately people, NGOs are raising money, um, but like UN, UN is dependent on, on the donor nations. I, I don't currently know the status of, of, of what, what their coffers look like. Um, there are some states that have sent aid and we've seen, uh, Saudi Arabia, Italy. Uh, I don't know that Russia and Iran have really sent anything of any significance and Russia and Iran are the backers of, of the Syrian regime. So when I say that the fundamental problem remains in Damascus, Damascus is also propped up by, by these, these two other nations. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I don't know the exact status from who's given what, where, but the United States all throughout the, even during the sanctions regime, I continue to send. I mean, I think it's fun. It's really un- important for people to understand. And I, let me preface this by saying sanctions don't necessarily work. They don't necessarily, um, you know, it's a questionable value in terms of bringing a regime down and, you know, demonstrably does impact civilians. But humanitarian aid, if we speak about it in, in the term of art sense, has never been uh, affected by sanctions. So, you know, and the U.S. has continu- did continue to provide aid throughout the, throughout the past decade. But I wouldn't be able to tell you the numbers. I'm not, you know, a government representative. Can you tell tell us more about this? David Beasley, the executive director of the UN World Food Program, tweeted, urgent, the Turkey-Syria earthquake is not the only seismic catastrophe we're facing. While we're going all out to respond, we are just months away from suspending food for almost 4 million people in Syria due to the lack of money. Do you know what he's talking about? World Food Program? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't. They are also like dependent on the donor nations. Okay, so, so then he's basically that, saying, yeah. yeah, he's basically saying we 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 give we provide food for four million people, but we don't have money now, and so we're months away from suspending this program. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, I mean that's devastating. Yeah, I mean, and yes, but this is but this is what I was trying. What I'm trying to say: the fundamental circumstances which gave rise to the, the crisis in Syria have remained unchanged. Mm-hmm. So what, so what is the plan? Like, really, what is the long-term global plan? And the thing is, all the earthquake did was meet. I mean, all we have been doing has been kicking the bucket down the road. And it hasn't even been a very long road. I mean, we could see the end of the road. And so the earthquake just sort of, you know, kicked the bucket back our way. But, you know, it, it just revealed that that has been a strategy. I, I would just argue that the strategy in Syria has been a failure, and something like the earthquake kind of puts that in, in stark relief. Today, we're speaking with Ali Malik, an award-winning journalist and director of international reporting at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. She's the author of The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. Today, we're talking about Syrian refugees and the plight of refugees. If you have any questions for Alia about what is happening in Syria, international response, and then what she's bringing to the show about how difficult it is to get aid to the people who need it most, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Um, we have a question from a listener about h- how can people find out how to help? What What's legitimate? Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have yeah. a resource on our page. Is it the Basma and Zetune Relief and Development? That, yes, that's the one I'm on the board of. But okay. I'm happy to shout out other places as well. I can, you know, Basma and Zetune, we are based in um, Beirut started off sort of as an ad hoc response to what people thought was temporary displacement. And, you know, it's grown. So we were kind of like try to respond holistically. You know, we run schools for Syrian uh, displaced uh, Syrians in, in Lebanon. Uh, we have shelter programs. But right now we're in our pure like this, you know, disaster relief response. And we, we do have an expertise in that. But there's also SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society, which is based, I believe they're in Chicago, and they have continued to provide medical care and um, run clinics inside Syria, particularly in the north. Um, 
and this is one of the things I think needs to be clear is that the Syrian regime perceives of any civilians in an area that they don't control or that has, you know, protested against them or, you know, as, as enemies, right? It's not, they no longer see them as their, as their fellow, their fellow Syrians. And so they are not particularly distraught that there are Syrians in these, in these rebel held areas um, suffering, which is made getting aid. So when we talk about the world food program, you know, part of, part of it is money and funding, but a lot of it is access. And the regime has very effectively not allowed access to, to the people in the North. And Syrians inside regime controlled Syria are of course suffering. There's inflation, there's lack of um, fuel, people are cold, prices keep going up, but it is in the North that is under constant bombardment and where many of the internally displaced have gone to. And that the, the regime itself does not want to see aid um, uh, get to. But yeah, happy to, and the Sam's, uh, I mean, you know, the white helmets, if, you know, they, they're for some people, they've been sort of effectively smeared by some folks. I don't work with them. I don't know them personally, but they are the ones who have an expertise in rescuing people from under, um, buildings that have collapsed on top of them because of bombardment. So that's also who ended up, uh, doing a lot of the, like trying to dig people out while there was still, while there was still a, a chance of finding people alive under the rubble. So what are the solutions here, Alia, given everything you've laid out? I mean, by, by what, by what metrics, moral solutions, you know, I mean, that's, this is these questions because I've been asking these as well. Like, why should anybody care? Um, I mean, Syria, you know, Zelensky likes to talk about how Ukraine is sort of like this massive turning point in in human, the course of human history. But I I really think it was Syria. Um, A lot of, uh, I mean, a huge moral failure, right? This is essentially a war against the civilian population to sort of get them uh, back in line, back into submission by a regime that, you know, had been in power already for four years. Now we're over 50 years uh, backed by you know, Russia, Iran, like a lot of the techniques that we're seeing Russia use in Ukraine were techniques developed in Syria, how this, you know, besiege civilian population, bombing hospitals and schools and bombing people as they think they're being evacuated. Um, you know, so so is this, are the solutions enough for us to be able to get back to our regularly scheduled programming? That's one set of solutions. Is it solutions to sort of try to write the path that we are on globally where impunity, you know, there is, you know, the impunity of the Syrian regime, the impunity of the Russians in Ukraine, of course, the impunity of the Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq for all the, mm-hmm. what, you know, what abouters? Like, yes, this is a world, this is a world where we live in, where power does for the most part, uh, get you what you want and no one is holding you accountable. I mean, so is that something we're trying to solve? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to be flippant, but I, I, I think the question becomes, what are the solutions depends on what, you know, what, what are your metrics? You know, and the, the current solution had been leave the Syrians, all those displaced folks to Turkey to handle, let Turkey deal with it. They have space, commonality, maybe of culture. And Turkey was happy to take a ton of EU money to keep people from sailing. But now like that plan clearly is not a viable plan because like the play, the dumping grounds themselves are no longer stable, literally not stable. And now there's a, po- a population there that's going to of course take precedent 
of course the Turkish government is going to care more about its Turkish people than, than the Syrians, which already was a wedge issue in, in Turkish politics. So yeah, what are, so, I mean, I think that's really a question for, for this entire world. <laughs> like what, what world do we want to live in right. as we rapidly destroy it at the same time? Well, and then you just think about the living conditions of Syrians in Turkey, and now they're they might go back to Syria. I mean, it's just, and people who've just yeah, been on the move over and over again. Yeah, it's just and they're willing to go back for danger. They are willing. I mean, I I spoke to a family. It's just like you know what? At this point, I'd rather just die in Syria mm. than than be displaced again. Wow. Well, and, and then this is a weird, yeah. Ahead, well, sorry. exactly. And then to your point, um, the head of the UN World Food Program, David Beasley, said, uh, "Expect another wave of migration to Europe if people don't have food." And yeah. um, here, here's a headline from Info Migrants: Earthquake survivors face very long delays for German visas. Germany has erased visa conditions for some earthquake survivors, but many of the bureaucratic hurdles remain high. That's just one uh, country we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, this is a trend across the world. I think we're going to continue to see like the externalization of borders. The same way you see like Italy trying to get Libya to keep people from sailing across the Mediterranean. And this is what we saw a few years ago when the EU gave Turkey a ton of money, you know, basically bribed them to stop letting people go across the sea. Uh, you know, the United States tries to hold people, you know, in Mexico and, as opposed to letting them come through the border. You know, these... This is what I mean when I say like the sort of failings are global. Mm -hmm. You know, people are on the move in large part because of climate stuff, in large part because of impunity at home, right? I mean, and so if, if these things are going to continue to fester, I don't know why there would be any assumption that there wouldn't be continued continued movement. And yes, we try to externalize these things, like hold people in Libya, hold people in Turkey, hold people in Mexico. But then you know that calculus depends on those places being able to hold them. Mm. And then, you know, they're like dams, but like the, the, the surge of water that is coming is like there nonetheless. So just pray, I guess, that the dams hold. Hmm. Alia Malik is an award-winning journalist and director of international reporting at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. She's the author of The Home That Was Our Country, a memoir of Syria. Alia, thank you so much for the oh, work that you do. Rose. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You're well. You can find more information about what is happening with Syrian refugees at yourcallradio.org. Coming up after a break, we will talk about why legislators in Texas have failed to pass basic gun control laws. This is Your Calls Media Roundtable. We'll be back after this.